These are the true stories of sequestered strangers. Ordered to shelter in place, work from home, and have their love lives taped. Find out what happens when people stop wearing pants. And start getting real. This is the real world, I think, with love under lockdown. Hey everyone. Hey all. My name is Kara Cutter. And I'm Farah D. And we're longtime friends currently under shelter in place orders in the city of San Francisco. During a recent Zoom happy hour, we found ourselves wondering how our single friends were handling virtual dating. And if any of our wedded friends are ready to kill each other. And then we got curious to know how others were faring in this unique time of COVID. And just like that, love under lockdown was born. We have spoken to people all over the U.S. and abroad, including a woman who describes herself as the hall pass mistress in a marriage on the rocks, a newly single born-again Christian who's treated to a third date at Costco, an entrepreneur who found himself missing sex parties, so he took them online, a recently incarcerated reality TV star nursing a broken heart, and so many more. We are excited to share our favorite stories with you, as well as a few tips and party tricks we've picked up along the way, like how to be virtually flirty and keep the phone sex dirty. All in all, we've been blown away by the spirit of creativity that has prevailed as people have figured out new ways to connect. So here we go. We had the pleasure of speaking with David and Joel on June 12th. Such a pleasure. That period of the pandemic, those were some dark days. Not that we're currently in much lighter (laughs) days, given that California is currently on fire. And And I'm looking out the window at a orange black sky and it's the middle of the day. But June 12th was about two weeks after the murder of George Floyd. So we were in the midst of protests. San Francisco was under curfew. curfew. Yeah. On June 6th, half a million people joined protests in cities all across all 50 states in the U.S. We were in some end-of-day shit. And speaking with them was a bright light (laughs) in that dark time. Yeah, they're such a delightful couple. And they've been together for 14 years, but they have that young couple energy. They do. If you would have told me they were newlyweds, I would have believed you. They were finishing each other's sentences. First of all, they were like sitting there in matching tank tops. And I think Joel had his arm around David the entire conversation. So in love. These two are national treasures. Both of their levels of self-awareness was extremely impressive. That level of seeming like they know who they are to their core was especially shocking once we found out Joel's life story. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed in a million years what the background story was. Never, never. I think the lesson at the core of their relationship is in the dangers of making a judgment about who you will let into your life and why. You know, they had both made blanket statements, which were rooted in judgments about who each of them were going to end up with. Yeah. And the universe had such a different plan for them and they ended up with each other. And had they followed their own blanket statements about, I'm going to end up with a person like X, they wouldn't be together. Yeah. I cannot wait to share their story. All right. Should we get to it? Yeah. Woo. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Anyway, that's a coffee, mate. That's not alcohol. No, there's alcohol in it. Okay. <laughs> we outlawed any glasses with stems for the entirety of the quarantine because we're clumsy. Accident prone, yeah. With like computer technology and a mic in the vicinity, it's all bad. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can it. handle it probably, we can't. <laughs> so we're so excited to hear a little bit more about you both and your story. And we would love to hear in your own words a little bit, Joel, about your story. 
I'll try to keep this in, as encapsulated as possible. So I grew up in a very conservative Baptist home. And usually when I say that, the first thing people say is, oh, you mean like Southern Baptists? And I'm like, no, we thought the Southern Baptists were too liberal. That's, and, That's a big <laughs> statement. So, yeah. so usually I say, just think the softer side of the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we, it was a yeah. lot of long lists. And, and I was a willing subject of all of that. But I always knew I was gay. I didn't use that terminology because it just wasn't a part of our terminology. But I knew I was, and I just kept thinking that the next, I did enough right things that somehow the next bend in the road of doing enough right things would change that. Yeah. I kept looking to the future of, okay, you know, when I get out of high school and go to a good Baptist college, that'll change everything. You know, when I start dating girls, cause I didn't, I wasn't allowed to date as a teenager. So, you know, like when I start dating girls, that will change everything. When I get married, and it was just this constant, always the next thing, the next thing. And I didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> so when you say change everything, you thought that you would literally no longer be gay. Like you wouldn't have those I, kinds of feelings. Yeah, I thought of being gay as a sin problem because that's what I was taught, you know, so and if, it, if you view it as a sin problem, like any sin, well, then God certainly doesn't intend for you to live in sin. So therefore, he's made a way for you to escape. And if you aren't succeeding at that, that's your fault, not God's, you know, kind of thing. So it was always like, well, I must not be doing something quite right enough. How many years of your life did you live like that? Um, well, ultimately, about 35 Wow. So you had children and a wife and... I, you know, I went to Bible college. I married the gal that I dated. She's a good woman, you know, um, had three kids. Wow. Was on staff at a church in Peoria, Illinois for about a decade. And then I moved from there to the South Bend, Indiana area and started a church from scratch. And it was there that during that process which was a really grueling process, very similar to starting a business, all the same things reply. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you just have to do so much and invest yourself. And things started coming to an head there. And that's when I finally felt like something's got to give. I need to make some changes in my life. I was struggling, you know, of course, to deal with my own sexuality during that yeah. time. I had that moment of like standing, I lived across the street from the church with my family and I remember on the, like, a, it felt, in my mind, it was a dreary, rainy kind of day. I don't know what it was or if it just felt that way. Yeah. And I looked out the bedroom window and I was standing there staring at the building across the street. And I literally, I was there by myself and I just said out loud, I don't think I want to do this the rest of my life. Wow. Wow. That's really brave. I mean. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I realized this is, this is it. Like, this is all there is. From here on out, it means I just do this and I mm -hmm. suddenly started thinking about I like fast forwarded in my brain to like what if when I'm 70 and I look back on this how am I going to feel right now like what, what am I going to feel at 70 if this is what I continue to do and I suddenly just had these visions of everything that I'd ever wanted to do for me being cast aside and realizing that I'd spent my whole life making sure that other people's lives were good Mm. I had neglected my own in the process. And it was like in that moment I knew I, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. And um, then coinciding with that was also my sexuality and some very, which I'm happy to get into. It's not, a, it's not an uncomfortable thing, but it's a whole nother opening a whole nother Pandora's box. But I had, um, was really struggling with my sexuality and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And that was becoming a bigger and bigger monster in the closet, so to speak, uh, that I could not contain. And so I decided, of course, at that point in time that it was still wrong to be gay. You know, it was a sin. So I needed to fix it once and for all. So I called what at that time was the largest ex-gay ministry in the world or what is more commonly known as conversion therapy now. Um, and I called Exodus International 
and got connected to a counselor and spent three years in ex-gay therapy or conversion therapy trying to become straight. I mean, you talk about it like going to rehab, like you called the best rehab center that was going to cure you. Wow. And you spent three years. So you gave that a college try. Boy. <laughs> as you can see, it didn't work very It well. did not work. Oh, they tried. You tried. It wasn't meant to be, clearly. Yeah. You couldn't pray the gay away. That's mm-hmm. some bullshit. But, and, but when you understand, like, I mean, for me, I was not. I didn't come up. I mean, it's almost like we're night and day. Mm-hmm. Like, not just because of skin color, right? But, like, I did not grow up within any kind of a structure. Um, Was your family supportive of what you knew about yourself? I was always encouraged to be who I am. You saw David's pictures as a child. You know he was good. Yeah, I I always had a little little spark in my eye. (laughs) And his mom had the normal parental concerns about her only son. But there was never, I never had this dogma of you you have to be straight and where's your girlfriend mm-hmm. I never have pressure of when are you gonna bring me kids you know none of that like cis you know mindset you have to be straight none of that right and as it relates to religion um religion was also not pushed down my throat for a variety of reasons which I'll get into you know a little bit but all of this stuff like when I met him I was just kind of like okay I know you a good man (laughs) but you have some catching up to do right (laughs) got some catching up to and I'm okay with that because we all meet each other at different points in our life and our life so I'm okay with that I don't need like replica of me Mm. you know but you know how it is when you first meet someone you're like okay how are our differences going to match up you know yeah and, and where and when did you meet how did you meet um well so i started the church in south bend indiana i came out went through rc therapy ended up ending that realizing i'm done and that was the result of a final conversation with my two xc counselors but where i was like hey I don't feel like I'm making any progress. Like I've been giving this a try for three years. I was in group therapy and individual therapy. I was reading all the books. I went to the conferences, all that kind of thing. And I always say that at the end of three years, you know, I was looking around the only people I knew were people that were also in group therapy with me and they were all exactly like me. Yeah. Farther along than me. And I said, you know, Hey, I just need you to connect me to some people farther along in the journey than me, because I'm not finding a lot of, encouragement you know mm-hmm. and losing hope so to speak and this was the director of the state of indiana for Exodus international so this is the person that should have had the database right. of names of success stories you know right and he said i'm sorry i can't do that and when i asked him why in an email he was like well everybody falls in pretty much falls into one or two categories one this was who they were. They're ashamed of it. Nobody ever knew about it. They've taken care of it and moved on. Don't talk about it. Close chapter. Or two, this is who they were. They've moved on. They don't want to talk about it, though, because they're afraid they might fall right back into it if they talk to somebody like you. <laughs> Success. Yeah. Right. So, like, the first group, essentially, is actually people who want to deny the past and live a lie and don't want to live their truth. So you have those. And then the other group of people might be people who are like, I'm kind of wanting to live my truth and seeing you. My, That's so wild. And so at that point, you had probably an aha moment where you're like, okay. Like literally that was my turning point. Um, I remember I had printed out the email. I had gone to pick up my kids from their mother's house because she and I had separated and everything. And I, this is before smartphones. So, you know, I printed off the email and I thought, I'm going to sit down and read this. And I got there and I sat and I read that email and I literally, this is the truth. I wadded it up and I threw it down on the ground and I said, then I'm done. I have a life to live and I can't live like this anymore. And I I feel like that's the day I truly came out. Mm. Myself, I came out to my God you know, at the time. What does that mean? So when you came out to your God, what, 
you well, at the time, I was still really struggling with who God was in my life because I'd been brought up with a very well-defined version of what that meant. And so I knew I was technically, in a sense, I was shaking my fist in the face of God in that moment, according to how I was raised. So I knew that was scary. You don't do that, right? You know, <laughs> like that's, that's like waiting for the lightning to strike, so to speak. And so I had a conversation with God that day and I just said, listen, God, I know everything I've been told about you. And I know that you are, you know, everything. I've been told that you love me better than I love myself, that you know everything about myself, so on and so on. And I just kind of reminded God of all the things I've been taught about. Him. And then I said, so therefore you also know that I've spent 35 years trying to do this your way. And you also know that it has not worked. And that's not been for lack of trying, you know. And so right. I just kind of had this frank conversation. I was like, so I'm just letting you know that from here on out, I'm living as a gay man. And I don't even know what that means, but I'm living as a gay man. And if you have an issue with it, you let me know. I'll be listening. I'll be watching. You do whatever you need to do, but I can't keep doing what I've been doing. So I'm moving on. Yeah. And I always say that God spoke the loudest when he said nothing at all. Yeah. Because that you was heard. your soul. Like yeah. it, coming out to God was really you coming out to your true essence, your spirit, your soul, your personal connection with God, not what all the bullshit everyone else was telling you what God was. That was the awakening. It was one of the most honest, vulnerable moments of life. Beautiful. Then that started a whole rebuilding process of trying Beautiful. to rebuild life. And it was, a not, it was not too long after the term ground zero came into play because of 9-11. And, you know, before Grand, before 9-11, Grand Zero was not really a common household term. Yeah. Well, what that was, was in order to rebuild, you had to first get to Ground Zero. And the destruction and devastation from 9-11 was so great and so huge that before they could even begin thinking about building or rebuilding, they had to clear away all the debris to get to Ground Zero. And that's what I felt like my life was like. Wow, that's powerful. It was, it was years, it felt like years, it was years, but of just trying to clear away the rubble in order that I could start rebuilding. And so I started doing all kinds of weird little jobs, just trying to make a living because I found out that being an ex-pastor does not translate well on the resume. <laughs> <laughs> One of the jobs I finally landed was managing a small coffee shop in, in the town of Elkhart, Indiana, where we're was just outside of South Bend and I was living there. He was living in South Bend and I was managing a little coffee shop called the daily grind. And cute, very cute. Coffee shop is cute, right? It's and it was, story, it right? was a real treat, so to speak, because it was the first place that I was allowed to be out. Um, like I worked with other queer employees and I wasn't very comfortable being out. I didn't really, I, I was still uncomfortable saying the words I'm gay. Oh. And but they knew I was gay and they like helped me and so on and so forth. So I'll let David pick up from here, but that's where we met. That's so. where we met. Yeah. So this was like fall of 2005. And earlier that year, I had just started a new job and I had never tried out this coffee shop because number one, I don't drink coffee. I never have. I don't really care for coffee. If there's coffee in anything, I'm like, ew, there's coffee. <laughs> you really don't like coffee. <laughs> but it was fall and it was starting to get cool out, you know. And so I thought, well, let me go in here and see what they do with hot chocolate. Because I do like it. <laughs> um, and it looked like a cute little coffee shop, you know. So I went in and um, I had on like this like blue jean jacket and this scarf um, that was like a handmade scarf from when I lived in Colombia. You know, so I had a little flair to it. It wasn't something you could just kind of get at your local store. Let's just store say he looked that. really cute. He, you know, it was fall. So, you know, you're supposed to wear a little jacket and a little scarf. Yeah, yeah. All attire, right? <laughs> and, um, and I went in to get this hot chocolate. And, um, well, first of all, he was the tallest thing that I had <sighs> seen in a long time. So He's 6'5". Yeah, I was going to say. Oh! Wow. Very tall. Very tall, yeah. 
So I walk in and so immediately I see him and I'm like, oh, he's tall. He's a tall barista, you know, whatever, you know. So I walk up and I order, you know, my hot chocolate. And I could tell he was definitely interested, you know, because you know. know, He was given the vibe. Somebody, the energy you give off, you know. And at that time, I was in a relationship that was really on its way out. Um, You know, it was dying its own death, uh, so to say. And um, so, you know, I was, my mom always taught me, you should always pay attention to who is interested in you. That's a great advice. No matter what. Great advice, yeah. Because they may be out for your, you know, for your best interest or for your worst interest. So you should Mm -hmm. always pay attention who's interested in you. So I was like, okay, so I could, you know, this is good energy. This is a good energy here, you know. Um, But I didn't do anything because I was still in the throes of my relationship. But I had started, you know, going back in every now and then, like maybe every other week because I liked the hot chocolate. Like it was good. And he was a nice guy, you know, so I was like, oh, this is cute. He, so, he came you know. in enough that I knew mm-hmm. he liked a hot chocolate, no whipped cream, and that his name was David. But other than that, I didn't know anything else about him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so then, like, my relationship ended in, like, January-ish. Um, I had my, like, grieving period of where I don't want to be messing with nobody. I don't want, you know. I, yeah. yeah. It was, like, my first... I, it wasn't my first relationship, but it was just like I took a leap of faith entering into the relationship. Mm. And meanwhile, Joel was leaping out of faith. So yeah. you guys, that's a great. That's a good you guys one. both. It sounds like you were doing some really good work in parallel to get yeah. ready, get ready to meet each other. Yeah, you're right. We were all kind of on our own individual journeys of finding our true self or our next self right like that making some big leaps there right got through all of that and was starting to feel like okay i think i feel better now i think i'm ready to date again so i was i hadn't been in the coffee shop in a while so i thought well let me let me go back in and let me you know let me see if he's there because there really wasn't anybody else that was coming to mind that i was like that i was like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but I wanted to interject that we were both in that same spot of feeling like, because, you know, South Bend, Indiana, Elkhart, Indiana, these small, are small towns. Rust Belt, you know? Midwestern and cities. at that there. time, yeah. for the age of apps. So it was the internet. So we had gay.com, which was a very common chat room kind of experience. Between that and a couple of gay bars that were there, we both had arrived at the conclusion yeah. we have seen everything there is to mm-hmm. see in this town. We know everybody. Just background, like I was born and raised in South Bend. You know, my mom was white, my dad is black. Um, my parents were older when I was born. So I was born in 77. My mom was 36 when she had me. So, you know, that was, that was unheard of yeah. to be that old and having a child, right? And my dad was 55 wow. when I was born. So like, I, some of the, I, I attribute that to say that I've been an old soul from the mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. In a sense that that's what I was born from. Sure. But because of the, the, the dynamics between my mother and my father and the challenges and the really shitty stuff that happened between them, I had to grow up very quickly. And the community. I mean, because yeah. not, not that South Bend was a particularly more racist community than in the other. Yeah. But it had its own race problems. And his yeah. mother, who I never got to meet, she passed before I, was, I came into the picture. But, you know, she told him the stories of she and her husband being in the grocery store and people would come down the aisle and see them and turn around and go out and go down a different aisle mm-hmm. so that they didn't even have to pass them mm-hmm. in the grocery store. And they know? got married in 69, which was already revolutionary. Wow. Yeah. There weren't that many, you yeah. know, couples, you know, and in South Bend, right. you know, at that time. So I, I just kind of look at it this way. Like you either take full stock of who you are and where you've come from and you in a sense embrace it and you use it to move forward or you sit around and you play victim about it 
you know, and, and it's, and it's you not, really think that there's stuff in between. There is, there is, there yeah. is. But by saying it in that kind of like black and white context, if you want that kind of dichotomous context, what I mean by that is you have a choice. Yeah, there's got yeah. it. Yeah. You have to choose who are you going to be? In our last meeting, you described, um, both of you described yourselves as extroverts. So we'd love to hear about two extroverts in quarantine and how it's going down. I do think one of the things that we've learned through this is that maybe we were, we kind of suspected this, but we were maybe a little too social. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, What does that mean? What's too social? (laughs) We kept ourselves pretty busy with you know our our social calendar was pretty full it was like oh so and so invited us to this we should go to that there's this concert down here we should go our friend of ours performing at this jazz yeah. club and so it was like you know it's kind of nice to not have to look at our facebook events and calendars and, and see what we're Ooh. missing because it's been a relief there's nothing going on yeah yeah and then we went through a period of i think a little bit of mourning of like well what do we do now and then we yeah kind of started taking stock of, well, what do we need? How can we best use this time to invest in us? Yeah. Because, because, you know, when you're spending too much time in the streets, you know, you don't have enough time to take care of stuff at home, right? Mm -hmm. We haven't done enough of this, but one night in the beginning, we need to repeat it, but we scheduled a spa night. And for the two of us, um, put it on the calendar. And we spent an evening massage, you know, bubbly, yeah. you know, we had a little bubbly, oh. facials, just like mm-hmm. we did it all and just pedicure. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and it ended up in more than just a massage. I'll mm-hmm. tell you that. And, you know, <laughs> but you know, I mean, like, it, and, and we felt so relaxed from it because and we, we had, slept yeah. like babies. Yes. <gasps> I'm very curious where you both landed with God. Joel, did you find a relationship with God that you feel is, you know, Great question. everything that you'd hoped? And then, and then David, did, have you cultivated a relationship with God or, you know, adopted some of Joel's beliefs or, you know, your own along the way and being with somebody that has a complicated relationship with God? I'm going to uh, disappoint a lot of viewers and listeners. <laughs> Because everybody always wants me to say, so not you, but people oftentimes always say, oh, I found this amazing balance, and now, you know, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I was expecting to be we, we like the truth so much better yeah, than seriously. Any yeah. yeah. A friend of mine uh, used this statement, and I asked her if I could use it. Mm. And I, I identify as a faithiest. Okay. And, of course, that's not a real term, so I have to unpack it. Um, But it fit best of anything I'd ever heard. And so how I identify that is I believe that there is more than meets the eye. Mm. I believe that there is something bigger than you and me in this physical world. I don't feel the need to identify it or worship it. I just recognize it and live my life in respect that I am a part of something much bigger than me. And so that is what a faithiest is in, by my definition. Beautiful. And so, no, I don't go to church. Okay. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray in the you way. You've got more time on Sundays now. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, I found that even when we tried to go, and I'm all for faith. I'm not anti-faith or God or anything like that. I'm like, by all means, if your faith or your religion or whatever you want to call it is making you a better person, by all means, please keep doing it. Yeah. Like, I'm not going right. to tell you to stop doing that right. because it doesn't suit me. But we went for a while. We tried because it was a struggle for me. It was a long journey. Yeah. And I felt like, okay, well, so now I can't be a part of that kind of faith, but maybe I can find something that is open and affirming and welcoming. And so we, for a while, went to a church that was had a lesbian pastor. And it was like, it was great. But my experience overall was that I found I'm not finding any real needs met here. 
Like it wasn't doing anything. I felt like I was there to say, good for you for doing this, mm. you know, but it wasn't hitting me. And then yeah. I, I remember telling David one Sunday, I said, I feel like I'm just sitting in church thinking about where we could be for brunch right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sunday is prime brunching, so. Right. You know, so I'll let David tell I mean, his and, story. And I'm kind of, yeah. you know, I, I'm really have always been of the same really kind of core of how Joel described faith, right? I have never, um, I mean, I was baptized in the Lutheran church because okay. my mom was Lutheran, but we didn't go to church every Sunday. I mean, like my mom was just trying to make sure we have food on the table. And, okay. you know, I was a single, single, you know, single parent, only child, you know, like, just, you know, there were more important things than religion. <laughs> yeah. Suffice to say, and, you know, especially looking at a lot of the things that my mom went through just to like eke out an existence. Yeah. You know, my father had mental illness. Wow. And so was a paranoid schizophrenic and was in and out of the VA hospital because of that. So but the, the history and the things that my mom had to deal with from the racial standpoint, from the mental illness standpoint, you know, there were yeah. bigger pride than to worry about where the hell you was going to go to church every Sunday, yeah. you know, sure. <laughs> you know, that just wasn't on the core. But in that, you know, I've been in a lot of religious spaces and environments on my undergrad. I went to a Quaker college. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so I got to be exposed to a, a lot of the tenets of the Quaker faith, which is all about consensus and the light and being listening, listening, you mm -hmm. know, and being in silence and really with your thoughts and and not condemning. You know, there was it was not about condemnation and judging others, and yeah. it's about learning like that. around you, right? You know, so. Um, that influenced a lot of my perspective, but also I spent time in lots of black churches too, you know, so I got the other side of that, um, and the family and the goodness that comes from that and the, the kind of warm touch of you yeah. feel great meals and the goodness that comes from that, but also one ear always open to criticism of homosexuality and, yeah. You know, condemnation so to say right so yeah. by being in a variety of environments i i've been able to pick and choose what i like about wow. various religions and various beliefs and i truly believe that that's what we're supposed to do because if there was only supposed to be one religion then that's what it would what it be <laughs> i agree yeah so i have really tried to apply that to all aspects of my life. Um, so that keeps me from choosing a religion that also makes current circumstances very problematic because oh. we have so many people who are not used to, to considering different viewpoints, experiences, perspectives, information, yeah. They're, they're used to getting the same or the same things yeah. that they've learned being reinforced so that when it's challenged, it's taken as an attack. Right. Mm. I, I feel like people have, have forgotten even how to listen and, mm. and how to truly take a moment to identify with someone else's experience it's, you know, beyond unfortunate that this is what it's taken, death and destruction to have, to have some of these conversations. I, you know, I've been thinking a lot and, and reading and listening. And I think one, there's been a handful of analogies that have sort of risen to the surface to, to try to just have one of those conversations where you're encouraging people to walk in other people's shoes or to go through that as an actual exercise rather than just paying it lip service. And one of them that's come up that stuck with me actually has to do with 9-11 and kind of the ground zero analogy, which is to say that um, if you remember, and all of us here do, waking up on the morning of 9-11 and seeing the news or reading the news or even watching the plane, you know, 
hit the tower that that all of those feelings, the fear, the terror, the, are, are we all going to die today? Like do have terrorists, have whatever this is, you know, are they going to hit all the cities and get us all like that abject terror, you know, whatever it was to you as sort of the analogy to the black experience, you know, in America, whether it's having to face down a cop or, you know, being a mom and fearing for your, your black child, that sort of deep seated in the, you know, in the soul fear um, being, you know, one of these analogies that has risen to the top in a, in a, I think worthwhile exercise of, of walking in, you know, trying to walk in someone else's shoes, imagining a time in your life where you can relate as a, a white person. And, you know, I do think that there is something worthwhile there in, in sort of going through these types of, you know, remember that time in your life where you had to face some really uncomfortable or hard or almost impossible feelings. Uh, I, I have no answers. <laughs> I don't, you know, <laughs> I just think there is something very important to these conversations. Yeah. And I do like the analogy you brought up because that was a time that a lot of people could think of just being really uncomfortable and yeah. really feeling unsafe. But I may bring this full circle back down to our relationship because when I said earlier that we both had, had kind of arrived at the conclusion that we weren't going to meet anybody in the South Bend, Indiana area. Simultaneously with that, I was a single dad raising three kids on my own three young preteen kids. And that was not easy. It was, I was eking out a living, working two, three, four jobs. You know, I did at one, there was one point in time when I was working at least three jobs, if not four. Wow. Um, like delivering pizza for Pizza Hut, substitute teaching in the school system, working the front desk at a gym and like something else. That's I don't even amazing. remember. You know, like just trying to piece it all together and make a living, keep my kids fed, keep them in school, so on and so forth. And so I kind of arrived at the point during that time of thinking, you know what, I can't, I had been around enough stereotypical shallow gay men, especially white gay men, mm. who mm -hmm. all their biggest concerns in life was how they were going to decorate their house and what the next party was and the costume for it and what trip they're going to take yes. or what and I was like I would love for that to be my concerns right now and and I thought I will I mean I I remember I went on a date I, I thought I'm going to go on this date so I met this guy at his house and he wasn't quite ready so he took me back to his family room of his condo and he's like you wait here I'm going to finish getting ready and I sat down and he was a good looking guy he kind of looked like uh, 80s Chippendale dancer kind of guy. I was really excited to go out with him because I'm like, Ooh. and I remember I sat down in his in his uh, family room or den or whatever you want to call it, and this whole wall in front of me was full of photos of himself, and not necessarily photos of himself with other people, but like photos of himself. himself. <laughs> oh no, no. Yes. <laughs> no. That's so yeah. It's just not never gonna work. Like and so yeah. I just you know, I can't be with anybody who doesn't have children. If they don't know what it's like to raise children, then they have no clue what I'm going through. And I thought that that was kind of the defining factor. I decided that. But unbeknownst to me, yeah. Dave at the same time was reaching a similar conclusion only I can't be with a white person. I need to be with a person of color because mm. a white person can never. Oh, yeah. It, How interesting. You know, those best laid plans just <laughs> have a funny way of. <laughs> they really do. And so we also like come up with these ideas of like how we're going to decide that somebody can understand our struggle or our. Yeah. That's the key word right there. And as I started to examine more of it, because of course my brain was automatically like, well, David, like just because somebody's white doesn't mm. mean, you know, they can't identify with you. Like I, I knew better than that. Yeah. But it experience after experience after experience, you start to think, well, unless somebody proves me 
wrong or differently from my experiences, I'm thinking I'm going to have to go in a particular direction, right? Mm. You know, from, but by examining it more, the issue was struggle. Like, yeah. you, you couldn't be with people who didn't know what it was to really think outside of themselves yeah. That's what I'm and to truly consider to think other people, other experiences, you know, and be willing to learn right. from, you know, even, even if you didn't have that experience, like, that's okay. Cause we're only, we, we are who we are. We came where we came from. There's no way you can have all of the experiences known to mankind, but right. are you open to, to truly learning and experiencing new things and possibly changing your perspective, mm-hmm. you know, or the ideas that you've previously held because of ex- new experiences, right? And that doesn't mean you're selling out. To me, I realized, okay, David's never had children. And, and I realized that wasn't the issue. It wasn't about having children. I think David was realizing the same. But to me, what I realized is it's about being willing to live outside of yourself. And not be a psycho narcissist with just pictures of yourself on the wall. I mean, at least throw in a picture of like Yosemite or something like. (laughs) Some scenery, right? When I met David, I was not a very woke white guy. I (laughs) I love that you said woke. He wondered why there, I mean, we specifically had, you know, conversations about why there had to be a Black History Month. Because he was just like, I'm not against it, but just like, help me. Help me understand, yeah. That's where I took a big sigh, and I'm like, okay, well, where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) What broke me was within a couple of days after the whole George Floyd, after the protest began. And was watching the national news, and they, they show, they show, Black people in Paris. They show black people in London. And white people. And right. white people. But Just I mean, masses, they, of masses of people in these other countries who are protesting on our behalf, yeah. first of all. Yeah. For their own shit that they're experiencing in their countries. Yeah. Here, people in other countries, the first yeah. thing they said out of their mouth was, American black black Americans pretty much however they said it we are we are in yeah. solidarity with you and this is about humanity at the end it really is about humanity I've made it my mission a friend of mine and I just finished a book called cultivating culture and uh, as a garden and we talked about the fact that people are tillers seed planters and weed pullers and um there's a necessity for all three, but I'm a seed planter for sure. And I feel like that my job, the the way to best use my voice is to try to have those engaging conversations, information with white people who during this time are going, I don't like what's going on, but I don't know what to do about it. Mm. I don't know how to have a Which is very fair as of the system. Totally live in right so i started a series called white people dialogue starters and um and i use the term white people on purpose because it makes us white people very uncomfortable to be called white people which is so ironic (laughs) you don't mind referring to black people or anything else white people suddenly we feel like oh why because, are you calling me because, a white person? Because race has, we have been taught to see race as an other. Yes. Oh. It's not a thing, honey. No, it's a other. Oh. So when we have that construct, well, you know. Yeah. I've been trying to share educational things, and these are not like memes and gifts or um, like sensationalized stories. These are like, here, watch this TED Talk kind of thing. Mm. And I've made a rule on it that if you haven't watched or read what I've posted in its entirety, you're not allowed to comment. Mm. And, but once you have, mm-hmm. then right. let's have dialogue. Yeah. Don't just read the headline because, yeah. So where, where do we access these conversation starters? They're on my personal Facebook page, Joel okay. Barrett. There's a lot of downsides to this quarantine. A lot of downsides. Yeah, and sure. it's really frustrating. But I think we have to look and say, well, how can I make the most of this? And how can I use this as a time that is kind of uninterrupted time to invest in me? 
and the things and us. Yeah. We aren't used to that. We aren't living. We aren't used to living without distractions. Yeah. Yeah. Forced us into that. And I think it, for some people in relationships, it has revealed just how broken they or their relationships are. And I, one of my things I tell people all the time, I do a lot of like life coaching and things. And I tell people if it's broken, either fix it or throw it away. (laughs) But there's no prize for living with broken things. Right. And so a lot of people just choose to live with broken, brokenness in themselves, brokenness in relationships, jobs. It doesn't matter. And it's like, you don't have to live with it broken and this, the reason this quarantine has been difficult sometimes is because it has magnified the brokenness because we don't have anything to distract us from it. Yeah. Yep. That's that would be my advice to people is like, yeah. okay, maybe you've realized there's a lot of brokenness in your life. Well, this is a good time to fix it. Mm-hmm. Throw it away. Either right. one, that's fine. Or throw it away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, thank you for thanking both. I think one of the things that we had hoped to surface through this podcast are these, you know, pandemic silver linings, right? Like, what are we learning? What um, are we being forced to really confront? And what are we taking stock of? And what do we hope to carry into a more normal existence? The insights that we've gleaned along the way. And I think there's so much there once the noise has been reduced in your own life and you've had to look at, you know, what's broken, even something a little like more surface, a little lighter where you two learning that we don't need to go out five nights a week, actually watching the sunset together or having a spa night is equally as fulfilling, if not more so than a really busy social calendar. So yeah, thank you both for, sharing your story with us. And if you have any other pandemic silver linings, um, I'd love to hear them. Can I share one other uh, Bible thing from my, my Pastor Joel days? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a story in the Old Testament. I don't remember it all because I've been so separated from that whole part of my brain. But story in the Old Testament, a prophet who went to the mountain to try to find God and hear God's voice. And he was in a cave and he was praying that God would show it, reveal himself to him. And there was like a big, I, I don't remember the exact sequence, but it was like, there was an earthquake and he was like, oh, is that God speaking to me? And there was a tornado. Oh, is that God speaking to me? And it was like fire, you know, it was all these things. And then when it was all over, there was nothing but silence. And it was in that moment that he heard the voice of God. And God was basically saying, I'm not in all of these big, noisy, loud, colorful things that you're looking for me in. Mm. Still moments. And I feel like that's what something is also doing is it's forcing us into that spot of you don't realize how busy and noisy life has mm-hmm. been. Yeah. And yeah. we've grown so accustomed to the noise and thinking that the noise and the color and the movement and all of these things is what is where we find our our joy and I think it and sometimes it's it's a distraction mm-hmm. distraction from just that stillness of going mm-hmm. oh wow now I don't have anything to think about except what's real mm. the latest yeah. concert and the latest club or whatever is fun but it's oftentimes a distraction mm. yeah so true I love that beautiful oh, yeah. it's my book it's a little cultivating culture. So is, oh, I know, is this just cover. out now? Yeah, we just read as a garden. Today. Oh, today? Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my god, congratulations. Just, wow, that's so exciting. And and you know what? And so you can see the the post that he was talking about earlier. Yeah. Like just just friend us on Facebook. Yeah, we'll link we'll link to yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. We release this episode. Uh, Absolutely. Book about big ideas, because it's a very small book. But it's the, the subtitle or the line down here is Reaping the Harvest of Diversity and Inclusion. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a really good conversation starter for people, organizations, boards, and, it, and it's all parallel to a garden concept, the concept of growing a garden. So I'm excited about it. It's so relevant to the pandemic and all the gardening. And it was that, or you could have been like sourdough starter, like baking. It was like, yeah, gardening. 
I have some yeast in my cabinet that I'll sell you for a good price. <laughs> I it, it's a hot you. item. I can go to downtown San Francisco and like peel one off a like fence post these days. The sourdough starters are like their own little pandemic, I think. <laughs> Well, we we will look forward to checking that out, and congratulations, and thank you both. Thank really, you so, so much. much. Yeah, honest and sharing your story and such a great conversation. Yeah, just like providing some like you know love in the face of everything else that we're discussing and dealing with and thinking about right now. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, lady. Yeah, get another spa night on the calendar. <laughs> Have a great night. Okay. Bye bye. Bye, you guys. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed David and Joel's story as much as we enjoyed speaking with them. And we have such a great podcast coming up next week. We do. Oh my gosh. Next week in our dreams. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Cara. I love you in our dreams. We have an amazing episode coming up next. We are going to delve into pandemic virtual sex. Mm. <laughs> so stay tuned. So and then some of the outtakes where we're struggling to speak English, I think would be relatable. <laughs> would be other, funny. I hear other people say that on podcasts too. It makes me feel a little better because I'm like, okay, it's not just me. Like, no, it's not just us who can no longer speak English. Um, <laughs> if you, My little if, sister literally told me that. She was laughing when I was talking. She's like, oh, you can't speak English anymore. <laughs> shit. <laughs> right. Oh, shoot. Have I lost my ability to speak English? <laughs> Have I ever had the ability in the first place? So, yeah. <laughs> It'd be cool if you could suddenly speak another language. <laughs> Out of nowhere. It would be awesome if you could yeah, just suddenly <laughs> speak Cantonese. <laughs> oh my gosh. Jeez. So Farrah just experienced a virtual hug with our last call. We're both processing it, I think. We're <laughs> processing it too. And she had to witness it. I had to watch it. I wasn't in on it. And I was I was just saying I, I felt jealous. And then I was very glad I wasn't part of it. Then I was really, really glad I wasn't part of it. Then I was jealous again. It was a roller coaster. Oh it was God. a roller coaster. It was wild. Literally like, tearing up. That's so funny. <laughs> I don't understand. Oh.